Turn with me to Acts chapter 2 as we return to our study in Acts. Um, If you're here visiting with us on Mother's Day or you've never been with us on a Mother's Day or Father's Day, um, and you grew up in a a tradition that uh, kind of used that day to set apart to preach a sermon specifically to the mother demographic. Um, that's not a tradition here at TCPC that we do. We, we honor you moms today. We're so happy for you. Um, so thankful for Will's prayer. Um, and But you probably heard in his prayer why we try not to single out a certain demographic and make worship kind of around that because in his prayer, yes, he prayed for moms and he also prayed for those battling infertility and singleness and loss of children. And it's just... You know, it could be a tough day. So, uh, so we, we, we want to pray for you, and we love you, and go have a wonderful lunch, and make them let you have a nap this afternoon, and all that good stuff. Um, but as far as a sermon, you get a sermon on speaking in tongues. So, there you go. Uh, Acts chapter 2, verses 5 through 13. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews... Devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia... Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans, Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongue the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said they were filled with new wine. The word of the Lord. Open our eyes to see your word is both true and beautiful, both right and practical. Uh, Lord, give us what we need to take up a passage like this that um, for many is historically a confusing passage or maybe misunderstood or even controversial, Lord. Um, We need a special measure of your grace when we... Uh, take up some of the more difficult interpretive um, parts of Scripture. And so I pray that you would help me to clearly exegete and interpret and communicate well and for uh, the hearers to listen well and and give ears to hear and eyes to see Jesus in all things. We pray your blessing on this time in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so it's been a month off for the Easter season, which was glorious. Um, Now we return to Acts, where um, we left off in the middle of the day of Pentecost. Uh, I know the vast majority of our congregation are so attentive to my sermons that you know exactly where we left off and don't need a review, but maybe a few of you need me to catch you up really quickly. Um, We've done two sermons so far in Acts, or excuse me, in in Pentecost. Um, In the first sermon, all I tried to do was simply help us understand the significance of Pentecost as an event in redemptive historical event at the beginning of the new covenant, its place in redemption. 
Um, this new covenant that Jesus came to accomplish and establish with his life, death, and resurrection. Essentially, Pentecost is the arrival of that and the application of all that Jesus accomplished. In the second sermon, we picked up that kind of strange imagery, tongues of fire and things like that, and looked at the meaning behind the imagery, which essentially showed us what was new about the new covenant. We talked about all that was previously only accessible through the Holy Spirit's special anointing on special figures like prophets and priests and kings. All of that was now fully accessible and possessed by every individual follower of Jesus by his spirit. In the new covenant post-Pentecost, you have it all. You have all that Jesus has to give. And now this week, we finally get to what everyone typically associates with Pentecost, um, speaking in tongues. Now, here's what I would like to ask of you going into the sermon. Whatever your experience is with a modern movement of tongue speaking, so past hundred years since the second great revival is really when the charismatic thing really came onto the scene. So over the past hundred or so years, Whatever your experience is with that modern movement of tongue speaking, um, whether you view it positively or negatively, whether you believe in it or you don't believe in it, whether you experienced it or you haven't experienced it, whatever your preconceptions you're bringing into this room, I'm going to ask you to just set it all aside this morning and come at this passage um, as best as you can with just kind of an open blank slate with this stuff. Because, because it's really going to stand in the way of understanding and appreciating and applying this massively important passage. This is a huge passage in redemption. And all of the controversy and misunderstanding is going to keep us from understanding if we look at it through this lens. So let me be as explicit as I can up front so as to... Here's why I can tell you to just set it aside. Because what we see happening in this passage right here is not what we see taking place in the charismatic movement. Now, if you want to go to the book of Corinthians and talk about what was happening in the church in Corinth as possibly something that more resembles tongue speaking in our modern churches these days, we can have that discussion, okay? But, but this passage, there, there is no serious theologian or biblical scholar, including those from the charismatic persuasion, who believes that what we see in many churches today is what took place at Pentecost. And so if you associate the two, it's really going to throw it off. It's really just not pertinent to the conversation. So what is happening with tongues on the day of Pentecost? Well, what we said previously was that Pentecost was the beginning of the new covenant. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible story, that's okay. We view it as one continual story, but really there's two, uh, there's two greater narratives, the old covenant and then the new covenant. The new covenant is after Jesus. And we talked about how the Pentecost was the beginning of that new covenant. And then right after that amazing event that we looked at last week, there is supernatural outpouring that shows us where the new covenant is heading. 
In other words, what happens when the new covenant is established is immediately we are given a foretaste of the end, a kind of flash forward and uh, what, what, what formerly what we call an eschatological inbreaking, a moment, a very brief moment where we get a picture of the end. We get a picture of literally heaven on earth. Pentecost is the day when heaven came down, giving us a preview of what the new covenant will bring when it fully and finally comes to bear upon our world. And what we're going to see in this picture of heaven This glimpse into what heaven on earth looks like. What we're going to see is three things. The culture of heaven, the content of heaven, and the call of heaven. So culture, content, and call. Let's start with the culture that we see here. Now, in this point, it's going to be a little bit longer, and this is where I'm going to do some teaching, okay? Let me preface it by saying this. Um, Somebody came up to me afterwards in the first service and said, I had never heard what you just said there um and kind of like like that that is like not how i've like just kind of and this is a person who's well versed and educated in the in in our tradition and so i i want to make this clear what i'm about to say is not novel theology okay this is this is how pentecost has historically always been interpreted and um and, and seen, um, it, it's going to be hard to find a well-researched commentary that doesn't take this angle to Pentecost. So I'm not like inventing something with this, okay? I just want everybody to know that, okay? If this is all new to you, it's not because I just made this up, all right? Um, this is historical teaching. All right, but this is where I'm going to teach a little bit, okay? If you're going to understand Pentecost, it is absolutely essential to first understand Babel, our Old Testament reading. I don't have time to thoroughly exhaust uh, that passage that tells the story. Let me just highlight what's important for us. First, the word Babel itself. Uh, Historically in the Hebrew, the word was associated with confusion or mixture, chaos. Thus, the final verse of the story that Ken uh, read that it says this, that is why it was called Babel, because, the, because there the Lord confused the languages of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. That's why it's called Babel. In the English language, we've actually retained that same meaning, though you may not have ever made that connection before. What do we call indiscernible speech? We call it Babel. Like a a babble of noise, a babble of voices. What do, we, what do we call confusing speech itself? We call it babbling. This is the conclusion of the story of the city of Babel. It's better to say city of Babel, though the tower obviously is prominent. City for a reason that will come up later. This is the conclusion of the story of Babel. God confused their languages, or to use the biblical word for languages, God confused their tongues and spread them throughout the earth. Now, the parallels of Pentecost are already starting to emerge. It is the day that the nations were gathered together and God united their tongues. But there is much more to see here. If you are unfamiliar with Genesis, uh, the book of Genesis, um, what you need to know, and maybe even help you if you try to pick up the book and read it, is that Genesis 1 through 11 is its own 
strange epic unto itself. Scholars call it primeval history as as opposed to normal historical narrative that begins with Genesis 12. It's a lot of stuff using a lot of rich imagery to tell a lot of the story that took place before the story of the Bible starts with essentially Genesis 12 and Abraham. What it does essentially is it sets the stage, the global stage for God's redemption. And here's how it works. Genesis 1 and 2 is the creation. Genesis 3 is the fall of creation. And then Genesis 4 through 11, what we witness is the undoing of creation, the destruction of creation, which culminates in the world as we know it. Scattered, sinful people inhabiting a fallen, broken world. And the culmination of the whole thing is that crazy story you grew up learning about this thing called Babel, the city of Babel. After Babel, we go straight into the genealogy of Abra- uh, 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 that leads to one person, Abraham, to whom God comes and makes his covenant of redemption with. And so the story begins, the more familiar story that we know. So Babel is to be viewed as the culmination of the fall, okay? And I've already told you that Pentecost is to be viewed as the culmination of redemption of the new covenant. Babel is a picture of hell on earth. Pentecost is a picture of heaven on earth. So it is right to view Pentecost as the undoing of Babel, the reversal of Babel, the removal of Babel's judgment. For a brief moment, God removed the curse of Babel. But what happened? What happened at Babel that was so bad? Just building a city and a tower. The story begins by saying this, and this is where we really, this, is, this really connects to Pentecost. The story begins by saying this, now the whole world had one language and one speech. Now that's really dangerous for fallen sinful humanity. Fallen humanity together as one culture, one tongue, and because of this, they were becoming this kind of centralized hub and source of evil and depravity and wickedness. And what they're doing is they're building a city, a city of evil. By the way, this is why a city of Babel is so important. When in Revelation we see heaven actually come to earth, it's a city, it's a counter city to the city of Babel, it's the city of Jerusalem. Um, under, the, under the glory of God. But what is the purpose of the city of Babel? Not the glory of God, but the glory of man. They say, this is what they say. They say, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. They want to build a tower that stretches to the heavens, but not to get to God, but so that they could be God. That they could rule the heavens, so to speak. And God sees this pride, he sees this arrogance, he sees this abomination, and in judgment, he confuses their their one tongue into different tongues and scatters them across the earth, and thus the stage is set for global redemption, beginning with Abraham. All right, now turn to our passage. Notice how verse 5 introduces the scene. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven. So the nations are back together. 
They are in the capital city of God. They're in Jerusalem, it says. The city of God. And they are Jews. They are children of Abraham. But the promise given to Abraham was that his nation will save all the nations that have been scattered by Babel. So Babel scatters the nations. He comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to save you and you're going to save the nations. But at this point in the story, Jews have been dispersed, meaning they're inhabiting different cultures and nations growing up um, with that as their native culture and that as their native tongue. That's why it says at Pentecost, there were Jews from every nation under heaven, which is just pregnant with that Babel imagery. Now continue on verse six and see what unfolds. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own literal tongue. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? The curse And judgment of Babel for this brief moment has miraculously been lifted and people are together again with one tongue. And yet there's a noticeable difference between Babel and Pentecost. And this gets to what I'm talking about when I talk about the culture of heaven. What's interesting about the reversal of Babel's judgment is that it isn't one culture with one tongue again, is it? Instead, it's all cultures hearing in their native tongue. So it's kind of one tongue, but it isn't one tongue. What is this? It is diversity and unity. You see, up until this, fo- up until this point, the faith was exclusively a Hebrew religion. To this day, to be converted to Judaism, you must, one must learn Hebrew to read and recite the Torah And it's written tongue. What's interesting about Pentecost is that the miracle didn't give everyone supernatural ability to hear and speak Hebrew, the Jewish language. Instead, it was that everyone was able to hear in their own native tongue what the Hebrew tongue had been proclaiming for centuries, the salvation of God. And this is the culture of heaven. Not that we all become one tongue, one culture, but that there is something that unites all tongues and all cultures, indeed something that reconciles all tongues and all cultures. The end is not this bland, homogenous people and culture. It is this vast diversity of every tongue, tribe, and nation united together in perfect unity and harmony as one. Pentecost is a preview of what heaven will look like. But when revelation actually shows up, when heaven actually shows up, it shows every tongue, tribe, and nation bringing, it says, their glory into the heavenly city. A new city, not Babel, but the Jerusalem, the heavenly city, where we will all together be speaking the same word in our different tongues, diversity and unity. And so... What is the culture of heaven? Every culture together as one culture. Every tongue together as one tongue. And what will unite us all together? What will bring every tongue together is the one common proclamation. So this is the content. 
of heaven. After Luke takes us through the litany of nations and cultures represented there, by, by the way, if you were there in that context and understood that, you would be like, oh my goodness, those people? That's what it's there for, okay? But he takes you through that litany of cultures and represented, and then look at his conclusion in verse 11. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. What shall unite every tongue, tribe, and nation together are the mighty works of God, specifically the mighty work of God to which all mighty works of God point the work of Jesus Christ, which has just been unleashed on the day of Pentecost. Return again to Babel. Babel, the content of Babel was the mighty works of man. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top of the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. But the content of heaven is the mighty works of God, specifically the mighty work of God to which all the mighty works point Jesus Christ. And what is the mighty work of God in Jesus Christ? It's this. You don't have to get to heaven like they were vainly trying to do in Babel. It is this, I proclaim the good news to you, the mighty work of God is that Jesus has left heaven to come to us so that through him you can actually get to heaven. That will be the content of heaven forevermore. The mighty work of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The content of the eternal story of heaven that every tongue will forever recount. The eternal song of heaven that every tongue will forever sing. The eternal feast of heaven that every tongue will forever enjoy. The one central thing that will unite the diversity of every tongue, tribe, and nation is the one central hope of every tongue, tribe, and nation. The mighty works of God in Christ Jesus. The day of Pentecost, the day heaven came down, every culture heard the mighty works of God in their own native tongue. When heaven finally and fully comes, every culture will proclaim the mighty works of God in their own native tongue. And in this way, we will all speak the same language, and the language will be the gospel. And I would be remiss here preaching on this to not invite my fellow English speakers who would not find themselves in this city that this is the world you're after. I just got done teaching a lecture series on what does the gospel mean in the secular age and what you're looking for is this world. This fully beautiful, reconciled, unity, diversity world that we're all justice generation vainly trying to put together and it's not working and we're only dividing, 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 dividing more. Here, in this crazy day of Pentecost, you see what you're after. You see the world that you're longing for and you're able to join that as a follower of Jesus. But we're not there yet. The day of Pentecost is a foretaste of heaven. It's a taste of heaven that leaves us pining after its fullness, which leads, lastly, to the call of heaven. What is the call of heaven? Get us back to Pentecost. We got a taste of it, and then it went away. 
let's get back. Or let's get there. Because it was a foreshadowing. It is the day that heaven came down. Now let us strive, let us labor after the permanent dwelling of heaven on earth. Pentecost gives us something to aim after, in other words. At the very beginning of the new covenant, Pentecost gives us our goal, our aim for the world. We aren't going to stop until our world fully and finally looks like Pentecost. Every tongue united together proclaiming the mighty works of God. And then with that, the Acts of the Apostles is officially launched. From this point forward, what we will see is the apostles in the early church with this unrelenting labor at any cost. I mean, at any cost. No matter the circumstances, no matter the danger, no matter the persecution, imprisonment, yes, even in a few chapters, martyrdom. No matter the cost, we will watch them strive to get the world to look like Pentecost again. Look at the conclusion of it all in verse 12. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? And with that question, the Apostle Peter rises to preach the gospel for the first time in history. That is to say, the gospel in its fullest form. Not the gospel that a Christ is coming, the gospel that Christ has come. We'll look at that speech, that's the theme of it is that Jesus is Lord. The gospel that the mighty works of God have found their fullest and final expression in the mighty gospel of God. Peter does new covenant evangelism for the very first time. And that responsibility now belongs to us. What could my application be except that we must embrace this call of heaven, that we ourselves strive by any and all means at any and all costs to make this world look like Pentecost, look like heaven on earth. Yes, that has justice implications, okay? Yes, it means reconciliation efforts, great application from this text. Yes, of course. Yes, it means praying and striving for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yes, it has so many implications about what we do with our lives. But brothers and sisters, I am unashamedly telling you, its greatest implication is evangelism. You are in a tongue. You are in a culture. You are in a nation. Tell them the mighty works of God. Listen, this sermon may mean that God is calling you to be a missionary to another tongue. That's how these, these, that's how these sermons always go. Be a missionary. And that's how Pentecost is always preached. Nations, go to the nations. It may mean that. It may mean that God is calling you to be a missionary to another tongue, tribe, and nation. It may mean that God is calling you to learn a foreign tongue so that you can preach to a foreign tongue people. But I can guarantee you that's not what you're called to do if you're not doing it in English. Don't come ask us to support your call to be a missionary to the nations if you're not a missionary to your neighbors. So here's my application. I want every single one of us, and if you've missed them so far, that's fine. They'll be online. I want every single one of us to take very, very seriously this evangelism series that we're doing this month. 
We chose it for a reason. We don't arbitrarily pull those things out. We had a conference on neighbor love. We're preaching on acts. We're equipping you in evangelism. I want you to take it seriously. To do it. To listen to it. To learn from it. But most of all, to do it. Woe be unto us if we spend all this time studying acts without acting. <laughs> Especially since it's been done to us. You do realize you're a product of Pentecost, right? You're, 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 you are the fruit. You are the benefactor of this campaign that was launched on this day to every tr- t- tongue, tribe, and nation. You heard the mighty work of God's gospel in your tongue, and your destiny is now heaven, of which, of which Pentecost was just a taste. But it's not just that heaven is now your destiny. It means that heaven is now your calling. You have been reconciled, and you have been given the message of reconciliation. Pentecost was the day heaven came down, but it was only a day. Only a moment. Let us now labor to get our world back to Pentecost permanently. Let us do our part in our tongue, in our tribe, in our nation to tell the mighty work of God's gospel. Let me pray for help. Jesus, help us to do that. We admit our failings. We have been blessed, but we have failed to bless. And we need strength to do that. Before we can lift high the cross, before the world, we must require the cross be lifted high before our eyes. And so now we come to the meal that promises that. Would you feed us with the gospel, strengthen us with the gospel, that we might be a full overflowing and empowered to take your gospel, the mighty works of God, to the world. Strengthen us for the calling. Through this meal we pray. Amen.